This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. Thank you, Bahani. You're very kind. We all know fire today as a source of heat, light, protection, a technological aid and a social enabler, but it hasn't always been like that. And at what stage did hominins lose their fear of fire as something really dangerous? Wildfire must have been a source of fire for early hominins, and presumably they grasped it and used it right there at its source. But lightning is probably the most common cause of wildfire in Africa, and it thus provides a seasonal source of fire, but a very brief source of fire. So in the early days when hominids first made use of fire, it would not have been very commonly. We have to distinguish fire use as opposed to the deliberate control of fire and its creation. So the opportunistic seasonal collection of fire from a natural source seems likely for the earliest hominins. But what we don't know is whether in those early times they could necessarily transport the fire, feed it once they got it where they needed it, and then maintain the fire for as long as they needed it. As a sideline, it's quite interesting to note that Raymond Dart, in 1948, named the three-million-year-old Makapan fossils, Australopithecus prometheus, and Job already mentioned that. But he named them that after the mythological giant that had stolen fire from the heavens, And the reason that Dart named it that was because there were some blackened bones associated with the fossils in the sites, and he thought that perhaps they were making fire. But unfortunately, chemical tests quickly showed that this was simply staining on the bones, and so the name was discontinued until recently resurrected by Ron Clark as the name for his new fossil, little foot, but of course not because Ron believes that those fossils were using fire, but because of the the morphological similarity. We have only rare evidence for early fire use in Africa, and I'm selecting three of the most famous of the sites to to demonstrate that. Kubifora, Swartkrantz, and Vondervaak. So Kubifora is at Lake Tukana in Kenya, and it was excavated predominantly by Jack Harris. The site is an open site, and I make that point because it's important. It's one and a half million years old, and Jack found burnt sediment in the site associated with burnt stone and burnt bone. Many of the critics would have suggested that perhaps wildfires swept through the site and, and burnt the traces, 
But Jack points out that in addition to the burnt burn and stone, there are unburnt burns and stones in between those patches. And so it seems most likely that hominins um, exploited fire here, though perhaps very briefly. Then at Swartkrantz in member three, which is one million years old, Bob Brain found 270 pieces of burnt burn, which he believes was evidence for fire, pretty much directly below the, the grid that you see there. And associated with those burnt bones were uh, bones that had been used as tools that subsequently Lucinda Backwell believes were used for extracting termites out of their mounds. Von der Weck, I think, is particularly interesting because this is a cave, and I emphasize that. Caves are dangerous places where carnivores live. And it would seem really unlikely that hominids would be able to move in there without the use of fire. And I emphasize always the difference between the use of fire as opposed to the control of fire. There's very little chance that fire could have accidentally got into Von der Vac because the fire traces here are 30 meters from the entrance. And this implies that the hominins would have transported fire from its source, perhaps wildfire, but the traces are ephemeral, so fire probably wasn't maintained for very long within the site. Here is the stratigraphic evidence and micromorphology from stratum 10, one million years old. And if you have a look over on the left there, uh, within the black box, you'll see the layers of ashes that demonstrate that fire. Alongside that also, um, there were burnt bits of burn, an FTIR, Fourier transform uh, spectroscopy, demonstrates that burning of burn. There were Achillean hand axes associated with stratum 10. Now, there were no fossil remains, but presumably the actor was Homo erectus, also known sometimes in Africa as Homo ergaster. Leaving aside the sites for the moment, we must ask the question, what evolutionary changes were taking place from the time that we see the evidence for fire? And is there any way of linking these changes to fire use? Homo erectus appeared in Africa somewhere between two and one and a half million years ago. That's certainly before we see the archaeological evidence for the traces of fire that I showed you. But what is interesting is that compared with earlier hominins, the brain size of Homo erectus increased and the teeth and the gut size decreased, as Job showed you earlier. Big brains are expensive tissues, and this increased brain size, yet reduced tooth and gut size, imply that Homo erectus must have had an enriched diet compared with earlier hominins. Now, there are competing schools of thought about why the physical evolution took place at this time. The first one is that hominins may have become more effective at obtaining meat 
especially fatty meat. Secondly, that hominins may have processed food mechanically, in the case of plants, to break down fiber, in the case of animal foods, to, to break down uh, tissue. And thirdly, that hominins may have cooked their food sometimes. How likely is it that Homo erectus sometimes used fire for cooking? This claim is made in the Cooking Hypothesis by Richard Wrangham in his wonderful book, Catching Fire. And cooking would especially benefit the young or the aged with deficient teeth. <laughs> but the sporadic archaeological evidence for fire use doesn't wholly support the cooking hypothesis. But as archaeologists, we recognize that evidence may be absent for several reasons, not least bad preservation in many of the sites. So, could she have cooked dinner some nights? And more importantly, could Homo erectus have roasted tubers like the Hadza do today? O'Connell and colleagues in their grandmothering hypothesis, suggests that this would have been a particularly cogent thing for older women to do, that they would have improved the health and the well-being, especially of children, um, by collecting tubers and roasting them to break down that fiber. And what is the earliest archaeological evidence that we have for roasting starchy plants. It's certainly a long time after the presence of Homo erectus. Now, the African Middle Stone Age began about 300,000 years ago, and we don't get direct archaeological evidence for tubers even then. But at Border Cave, which is now being re-excavated under the leadership of Lucinda Backwell, we see a Middle Stone Age archive that begins about 227,000 years ago and continues to about 43,000 years ago. A stunning sight, as you can see from this image. And at Border Cave, we have discovered starchy underground stems and corms that were roasted from at least 160,000 years ago perhaps 200,000 years ago. So in members 5BS, down at the bottom, and member 4WA, uh, we have now more than 60 whole corms or tubers that were roasted and preserved. After about 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens in many parts of the world developed pyrotechnology even further. And this suggests that perhaps fire was now created at will, that people had control of fire, perhaps through percussion of rocks, the striker-like method, or friction of wood on wood. But African archaeology is silent on this matter. We simply don't have evidence for that. And yet we see increasingly sophisticated pyrotechnology occurring through time, implying that fire should have been created whenever it was desired.
So I've chosen three South African sites just to demonstrate some of that um, rather complex pyrotechnology. Down in the south, Pinnacle Point and Blombos, and up on the east coast, Sabudu. Rocks were heat-treated at Pinnacle Point 164,000 years ago, and there at the bottom left you see a heat-treated biface from the area. The heat-treating of rocks improves their flakeability. It makes it possible to strike longer, thinner flakes, and it makes it easier for the stone tool napper to strike those flakes. It also improves the, um, the, the quality of the rock itself. And at Blombos, the heat treatment of silkrete at about 75,000 years ago demonstrates that it facilitated the pressure flaking of points to produce these long, thin, rather beautiful points. At Sabudu, we see something different, but it's much more recent. By 72,000 years ago, people were making compound adhesive. And Raman and EDA spectra show that both hematite and carbon was part of the recipes. And at 64,000 years ago, gas and liquid chromatography confirmed that there was coniferous uh, resin on some of the tools mixed together with hematite. Now, adhesive needs low temperatures for the drying and the hardening, so fire is an important part of the complex adhesive um, manufacturing process. And temperatures were controlled through firewood selection and the knowledge of how much wood should be used on any given fire. To sum up, the first use of fire by Homo erectus was seasonally opportunistic. The creation at will by Homo sapiens, the creation of fire at will by Homo sapiens, probably started somewhere between 300,000 and 200,000 years ago in the Middle Stone Age. And although we don't have direct archaeological evidence for this, Increasingly sophisticated pyrotechnology from this time suggests that people must have controlled fire. Now, in Europe, we know that um, Neanderthals were using manganese oxides and various rocks to create and strike fire, but we haven't yet found any of that evidence in Africa. I'm sure it's simply a question of looking for it and that that's a story that will be told in the future. In addition to the heat treatment of rocks and adhesive manufacture, people used fire to create medicinal smoke through the careful choice of firewoods. They used campfire, uh, campsite maintenance by using fire to clean up their bedding, for example, and clean trash from their sites which undoubtedly would have improved um, the health of the people who lived there. They used fire for hardening of wooden tools, and Hilary Deacon thought that they might have stimulated the growth of fresh grass in the felt, even during the Middle Stone Age, to lure game 
to sight. But these and other hot topics <laughs> are fuel for another day, so thank you. Good afternoon. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you very much. So I will talk about Classes River main site today. So Classes River main site is situated on, in South Africa on the southern Cape Coast. And what you see there is that it's situated close to quite a few very well-known caves from which we know uh, quite a lot about, especially the evolution of modern humans. Um, uh, on the picture below, you can see there's a picture of Glasses River, and there you can see that it's right on the coast. So it's very picturesque to work there, uh, a really very nice environment. Also on that bottom slide, you can see that there's a lot of lush vegetation around it. It consists of um, forest, fane moss, and thicket. Well, that is enough to uh, see to all of your plant needs uh, if you had to rely on that for food. So this picture shows you Classes River main site, and what may, uh, you may first see is that it consists of four recesses or caves that we uh, call by different names. So there, with cave 1A, I've put you two little human figures to show you the scale. This is against all of these caves, 21 meters of shell midden deposits formed. And this means it's one of the largest shell middens in Africa, dating to between 120 and 48,000 years ago. Then there was a break in occupation, and then after some erosion of the deposits, later Stone Age or Holocene people came in again and occupied the site from 4,800 to 2,300 years ago. So this vast amount of shell midden deposits is one of the best features of the site, but it's also one of the most challenging, because if you have only one career, where do you start? So there's a lot of work to do. So what I want to talk to you about today, being such a large deposit, is just flashes of light on some of the aspects on which Glasses River can throw some light. So at Glasses River, we have quite a few hominin or hominid human representatives. I will talk about some evidence that highlight the ecological genius and cultural flexibility and complexity of our early ancestors. And I would like to emphasize that they have achieved this without our current superculture. So they really adapted to that environment. So who lived at Glasses River? We've got more than 50 human fossils at Glasses River, and most of them date to between 120 and 90,000 years ago. What we can see from the remains that we have, and in the previous slide you will see that they were quite um, broken up, small pieces of human remains, so we don't have a full skull uh, or a complete skeleton, so fragmentary remains, but what we can still say from that is that it's a morphologically variable population with very small individuals as well as larger robust individuals. Interestingly, for Classes River, we get mostly adult, adults represented. For most of the other Southern Cape sites, we find mostly infants represented. So that is perplexing. Why is this the case? 
we do have only three teeth of infants. And uh, in the picture that you see there, that's the Hauzen's poor deposits dating to around se- between 70 and 50,000 years ago. So if you find teeth of infants in a deposit, you have to think that it was families that lived here. These Hauzen's poor deposits are the deposits that are, we can see the highest density of occupation in the site. So that's quite interesting that we find the infants in this layer. Something that's really interesting for Classis River is that almost all of the human remains, especially the lower deposits, those between 120 and 90,000 years ago, are burnt, as you can probably see from this picture, and many of them have cut marks. So what is the logical conclusion is that it was probably cannibalism that was practiced. Was it ritual cannibalism? Was it dietary cannibalism? We do not know. It is one of those issues that we need to, that we hope to throw light on in future. If you look at the remains from Classis River, and that these are mostly the food remains, you can see that the deposits from the lowermost layers, 120,000-year layers, consist of dense shell middens with all the foods that went into that. So it's foods from the um, coastal environment, fauna, fireplaces, etc. So from this you can see that in this time range that they followed from 120 thousand years to 48,000 years ago, we know that the climates fluctuated. And in that time period, they targeted different kinds of foods. Glasses River is often facetiously called the earliest seafood restaurant in the world because at the site, we do find, as I said, in the lowest layers, these dense, dense shell middens. And this is one of the earliest occurrences of this very dense shell middens. So here you see a few of the food remains that we find very often there. Uh, Seal remains, shellfish, and fish. This is combined then with um, large fauna and small fauna. So I've put this very large, we call this a a bovet class size, size class 5, it's above 900 kilograms, very large bovets. And to be able to hunt such a bovet successfully, you have to cooperate. So we can see throughout the sequence that they were very successful, intelligent, cooperative hunters that not only targeted the bigger animals, but also very small animals. Interestingly, since I've started excavating at the site again around 2015, the layers that we're targeting now are about 110,000 years old. And what we observed in these layers are these red and quartzite blocks, blocks that we haven't seen before. These blocks are associated with leached ashes and food remains. In this picture, you see postdoc, because she was my postdoc, Sylvia Benson, who did a lot of experiments on quartzite and how it behaves if it comes into contact with fire. And what we did determine then is that probably these quartzite blocks were used to roast food on. And that's a very early occurrence of that kind of behavior. Also at Glasses River, you find many hearths. 
So what you see here on this side is cave one, where we are currently excavating. So this is what we call the witness bulk, and these layers go from about 120,000 to about 90,000. This is the picture higher up in the sequence, where we have the Hauesenspoort deposits. So you will notice here the lowermost deposits here are full of hearths, it's these ashy lines, as well as these deposits here, full of hearths. So what has been done here in collaboration with Susan Menser and Cynthia Larby is to take samples from these hearths. Cynthia Larby took samples of the ashy parts of the hearths and the darkened soils under that and did scanning electroscope microscopy on it. And what she did find in these slides or in these um, remains was the remains of starchy tissue of underground storage organs in the ashes of the 120,000-year-old hearths as well as the 60,000-year-old hearths. Susan Menser, she did micromorphology, and she also, as a, she also identified these parenchymous tissue in the sediments next to the ashes that Cynthia has identified. So this is pretty important. So, so far it's the earliest direct published evidence. We also have very early evidence from Border Cave for the deliberate inclusion of starch in diet. We don't think this is the earliest evidence for starch inclusion because the genetic evidence, the evidence shows that modern humans have more copies of the gene that produces salivary amylase. That's the enzyme that breaks down starch. And this change seemed to have occurred already 300,000 years ago. So it seems that starch was an important part of hunter-gatherer diets long before agriculture developed. So this puts a new perspective onto the idea that paleo diets consist just of proteins and fats. So starch was really an important part of that diet as well. So from this evidence that I just really discussed with you very superficially, we can say that humans at Classes River followed a balanced diet with starchy cooked foods and roots and tubers combined with roasted protein and fat from shellfish, fish, small and large fauna. So this complexity in ingenuity that we see in the, in the diets, we can also link that to their cultural behavior. So here is a picture of the stone tools find, found in this, in, throughout the Glasses River sequence. So I've only put the typical stone tools from between 120 and about 70, 65,000 years ago. But what is interesting that we see just as the humans adapted their diet through time, they also adapted the way in which they make stone, made stone tools. And it was probably used for the same kinds of tasks, but they used different ways to manufacture those tools. So this gives us some inclination of how they thought. We do get clearer snapshots of cultural complexity during periods of more intensive occupation. And we think at this site it's around 100,000 years ago, as at, for example, Blombos Cave, 65,000 years ago with the Hausenspurt, and 4,800 years ago. So time only allows me to really quickly focus on some of these aspects, and I'll do that in relation to pigments 
and to bone tools because we seem to find more of these materials during these time periods. So in the 100,000-year-old levels, we do see this pigment that's been shaped, or ochre, shaped in a crayon, and you can see that it has these lines on it, so it's been used and shaped intentionally. Then there's also this piece of ochre, which has been scored or engraved. We don't think it's a pattern. We just see it, it was probably used to make powder. And this occurs in relation to an is, in association with these notched bone tools made on the ribs of a very large animal like a, an eland. Here you can see some of these notches. We don't know what it was used for. It is still a mystery, but we are working on that. Um, and then in the 65,000-year-old layers, so we're jumping up in the sequence about 12 meters, we do find similar pigments in the Hausenspurt, but I've mentioned earlier that we think it's one of the highest occupation density parts of the sequence. Here we also find more ochre. And here we can see that they preferred the color red, ochre, they heated some of the ochre. They also used yellow ochre. And interestingly, they made a white material pigment from different materials that might have contained both. So that's a quite interesting phenomenon. Also in the Hausensput, we get bone tools like this bone point. This looks exactly like the later Stone Age and Holocene and recent Bushman bone points used in bow and arrow technology and an engraved piece of bone. Then I'm jumping up to the top of the sequence, the later Stone Age layers, the Holocene layers dating to between 4,800 and 2,300 years ago. So these deposits, we are very lucky to have it in the same site as the Middle Stone Age deposits because it gives us a sharper, much more detailed resolution impression of life, ways, and behavior. What we do find surprising is that we don't find a big jump in complexity. The archaeological materials, they're basically the same types of materials. But what this allowed us is to investigate uh, often um, neglected part of our archaeological records, sound and archaeo music. And in doing this, We've done a lot of experimentation and ethnographic research to try and bring sound back into the Glasses uh, River Cave 1. So this enigmatic implement was found by Singer and Weimer already in 1967 next to a lower jaw of a human. It's a dual-hold, two-hold instrument or implement um, dating to around 4,800 years ago. So here you see some of the students doing excavations in that midden, later Stone Age midden. This is on top of the witness bulk. It's more or less these layers. And what we found when we looked at the ethnographic record and by doing some experimentation is that as Singer and Weimer and others have suggested, that this might have been a musical instrument or an instrument to make sound with. So I don't know if you know what a vur-vur is or a vera-vera. It's just the sound that it makes. So you put it in the middle, like Joshua is doing here. So we estimated the length of the, 
of the um, rope used by the ethnographic examples. And if you do this, it makes a sound. And interesting, the sound is, is very similar to that made by bees. So we're investigating this further. So this Glasses River archive highlights the kinds of achievements of African populations that played a prominent role in the development of humankind, of people like us. I would like to thank everybody for being, for being here and for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you. So I'm going to talk about behavior and settlement patterns in coastal Stone Age communities, the evidence from stable isotopes. And I'm talking about this because if we look at the long history of our species, we talk quite a lot about hunting and the role that hunting may have played in human evolution. We talk a bit about gathering plant foods and the importance of that. But we don't talk very much at all about the importance of coastal resources. And there are interesting questions about when people first began to use coastal resources, what the implications of this might be. And these questions are interesting because coastal marine areas like this are among the most productive habitats on Earth. And in more recent times, habitats like this have been very important for hunting and gathering populations. Why have they been important? Well, first of all, coastlines provide abundant, reliable, nutrient-rich foods like the shellfish. They also provide marine mammals, which are sometimes washed up on the shore. One doesn't necessarily even need to hunt them. You can collect um, beached animals, and when a large animal like a whale is beached, that provides very large quantities of food indeed. If coastal communities have the right technology, they can catch fish. Coastlines provide a range of uh, stone raw materials and other kinds of raw materials for making artifacts. Coastlines provide routes for dispersal. So one might expect that the line leading to humans would have taken advantage of coastal habitats from early on. I have to say that we don't have much direct evidence of this, but that's at least partly because of issues to do with preservation. So over long time scales, coastlines shift, sea levels rise and fall, and so globally we've got very little archaeology of coastal areas that date to um, the earlier periods of, of human evolution. In South Africa, though, we're lucky because we've got a relatively stable coastline, at least it's remained stable over the last several hundred thousand years, and so we have many well-preserved coastal sites um, which make it a good place to investigate these kinds of questions. So in the latter part of the 20th century, most researchers thought that aquatic resources only became important relatively late in prehistory, once populations had already grown and additional sources of food were needed to uh, feed these extra mouths. 
But today, rather different perspectives are being offered. And some researchers are even suggesting that coastal adaptations may have played a role in the emergence of our species, and that coastal adaptations may have promoted the particular behavioral patterns that characterize humans. So, what evidence do we actually have for early use of marine foods? Some of the earliest comes from around the Mediterranean, where at the site of Terra Amata in southern France, we've got shellfish that date to about 300,000 years ago. At Benzu in North Africa, there are shells dating to about 250,000 years ago. And at uh, the cave of Lazare, also in southern France, uh, slightly younger shells. At Terra Amata, these are associated with Acheulean hand axes. But there are some mm, disagreements amongst archaeologists as to the dating of some of these sites, as to what these shells are actually doing there. Are they really food remains? So we're not entirely clear what, what, we're, what we're actually looking at in these sites. I think they probably are food remains because we know that it's not just humans that collect and eat marine foods. Non-human primates do it too. And this is a troop of baboons that lives very near Cape Town on the rocks collecting and eating mussels. This particular troop regularly forages in the intertidal and they simply pull off the shellfish from the rocks and bite through them. Here are some more pictures of them doing that. And this makes an important contribution to particularly the protein component of their diet. But these baboons don't do this very much. They spend less than 5% of their foraging time on the rocks, and the rest of the time they're eating terrestrial um, plants and small animals and so on. Primates do this elsewhere in the world too. We know that along the Somalian coast, uh, yellow baboons forage for marine foods. In Southeast Asia, uh, crab-eating macaques uh, eat intertidal organisms. So this kind of behavior may well go back a long way in the human lineage. And of course, Neanderthals ate shellfish. We know that because they left the shells in caves in Gibraltar and um, other places on the Iberian Peninsula. So I said earlier that coastal habitats were productive, but we're only just now beginning to realize exactly how productive they are. These are some photographs that were taken as part of a research project in South Africa, where the researchers are working with local communities who collect shellfish to feed themselves. These are um, relatively um, impoverished rural communities, and they collect shellfish as part of, part of their, their diet. And the researchers were looking at how long it takes, how much effort it takes to get a reasonable return in terms of the quantity of food gathered. And the results, I think, are astonishing. So on average, 
these collectors can get almost 1,500 kilocalories an hour by collecting shellfish. And under optimal conditions, so optimal conditions are spring low tide when the seas are calm, they can collect 3,400 kilocalories an hour. And if you think that a sort of uh, medium-sized, moderately active person needs about 2,000 kilocalories a day, this is very productive foraging. And it's not hard. It's certainly a lot easier than trying to hunt down and kill large game animals. So coastal food resources are rewarding, they're abundant, but they are spatially restricted. They're restricted to the coast, the sort of linear um, uh, edge of the, of the land masses. And so some researchers are starting to explore the idea that perhaps foraging in a landscape like this, where the human groups would have been uh, sort of aggregated together, might have perhaps promoted the high levels of social interaction that are characteristic of our species. Here are some images of the site of Pinnacle Point, which is arrowed in the small map on the bottom left there. Pinnacle Point has become famous for the evidence that it preserves of marine foods at 164,000 years ago. So the lower image here, that kind of bank of material on the left, is a consolidated deposit that has a lot of shells in it, it has a lot of stone artifacts in it, and it's cemented to the wall of the cave. It dates back to about 164,000 years ago. So we're now back sort of early-ish in the period of uh, what some people uh, call modern humans. The question is, though, what role did shellfish play in people's diets at this time? So were the people who lived in this cave collecting shellfish just occasionally, like the baboons do? Or were they focusing on these marine foods like more recent coastal hunter-gatherer populations do? Here are a couple of sites from the same part of the world that date to the last 12, perhaps even more recent than that, the last several thousand years. And you can see that those are huge shell middens. In the upper photograph, all of that grey area that you're looking at on the ground there, all of that is shell. That's hundreds of thousands of shells. In the, on the bottom image, you can see very densely packed shell middens. And this is typical of the kinds of sites that we see in more recent time periods. In older time periods, many of the sites don't look as dense as this, don't seem to preserve this kind of evidence of intensive use of marine food. But it's often unclear whether that's because people were doing something different further back in the past, or perhaps whether the evidence is just often not so well preserved. So in order to answer that question, in order to answer the question of how intensively were people back 100 plus thousand years ago focusing on marine foods, 
we might turn to a different way of investigating this question. And that is the kind of thing that I um, do a lot of, which is to measure the stable isotopes in the bones and the teeth of consumers in order to try to assess what they were eating. So the way this works is that we measure the ratios of carbon-13 to carbon-12, nitrogen-15 to nitrogen-14. And those, um, the two isotopes in the pair, the heavier and the lighter isotope, progress at slightly different rates through the reactions that make up the global carbon and nitrogen cycles. And that happens somewhat differently on land and in the sea. So we can measure these isotope ratios in the bones of consumers, including humans, and assess more or less whether they were heavily dependent on marine foods or heavily dependent on terrestrial foods. And these pictures were taken in our lab in Cape Town. So we've done a lot of work like this on more recent coastal populations because we've got a lot more evidence from more recent times. And it makes sense, I think, to use that more recent evidence that we can interrogate more closely and then try to see whether we can reflect back on earlier time periods. So here are the results of some work that's been done um, on communities, coastal communities dating to the last few thousand years. And we have skeletons of people who died and were buried in the area marked by the yellow ellipse. They have somewhat unusual bone chemistry, indicating very intensive use of high trophic level marine foods. Their bone chemistry is different from the bone chemistry of the people who died and were buried at the sites marked by the yellow star, although that yellow star is only about 14 kilometers away. The bone chemistry is sufficiently different that we can infer that there was a territorial boundary between the two. Those two groups were separate because we see different chemical signatures in their bones reflecting diet over many years, probably several decades of their lives. Similarly, on the right, people who died and were buried in caves marked by the inland green star, the uppermost green star, had a different diet. They ate very little seafood, whereas people who died and were buried on the coast, marked by the lower green star, were eating a lot of seafood. So there was another territorial boundary between those sites over very small uh, areas of ground. In the middle, we haven't got so much evidence, so that's why there's a question mark there. We can do even better than this. We can look at diet through life by comparing teeth and bones. So teeth form in childhood and record the diet that the person was eating as a child, whereas bones continue to resorb and reform throughout life, so they give a longer-term average. And by comparing teeth that form relatively early in life, like the first incisor and the first molars uh, shown here, those teeth complete their formation pre-puberty. So we can look at a childhood diet and compare it with an adult diet. 
And we can tell whether people were living as children in the same area where they died and were buried as adults. In other words, we can tell whether people were bringing marriage partners in from outside their own territory or whether they were getting marriage partners from within their own group. And in this case, the people with the unusual bone chemistry in the yellow ellipse were marrying partners from within their own group. So what we've got here in recent time periods are societies that were very living out very specialised coastal adaptations. They were specialising in collecting marine foods and they had a social um, and a, a, a kind of group organisation that supported that way of life. And this kind of intense coastal specialisation is, of course, documented in many other coastal hunter-gatherer societies elsewhere in the world, here in California, amongst other places, in other parts of North America, uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So what, one of the things we'd like to know is how far back in time does this go? How early in human development can we see this kind of intensive use of coastal resources and what might that tell us about the way that coastal resources may or may not have factored into, into human development. So we're only just starting to do this, but we now have some results from Classies River where we've uh, Excavators have uncovered a number of uh, human remains. The work that I have done on these has been on the teeth, not on the bones, because the teeth preserve better over long time periods, like 110 or so thousand years. The teeth are more chemically stable, and so we can have more confidence in the measurements that we make on them. What we've found in our analyses of the teeth from classes is that back at about 110,000 years ago, some individuals were indeed specialising in marine foods. Other individuals were not. And we're seeing a wide range of variation that pretty much spans the range of variation that we see in populations dating to the last couple of thousand years. So it's clear from this that we can push the beginnings of significant reliance on marine foods back beyond 100,000. We don't know quite how far back yet, but towards the earlier uh, period of uh, the development of modern humans. And we wonder whether if there were marine specialists back then, does that mean that populations back then were territorial as the same way that the coastal hunting and gathering populations were in the last few thousand years? Does that mean that we've got the same sort of anthropological correlates uh, that we see in more recent time periods? I don't know what the answer to that is. We're working on it, and perhaps in a few years we will have some answers. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.